Good morning. It is good, in fact, to be together to worship and praise the Lord, especially during this time of the season when uh, we're reminded of the love and goodness of God in sending His Son uh, for our sake. What a blessing. Would you pray with me as we now enter the time in the Word? Lord, now as we come uh, and open your Word to us, I ask that you would um, grant us understanding and insight and wisdom, that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts, that he would illumine the scriptures to us that we might understand. I pray that all the distractions that are in our hearts would be dismissed and that we would be tuned in to what you have for us this morning in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Who's the most famous person that you know? <laughs> I suppose audience participation's okay. I was giving you time to think, but it's okay. And maybe it's an athlete, uh, entertainer, politician. Um, what if I were to tell you that I know Russell Wilson? Mm -hmm. Now there's a name to drop. I know Russell Wilson. Let me tell you a little bit about my friend Russ. Um, he was born on November 29th, 1988, lived in Richmond, Virginia, raised in Richmond, Virginia, attended the University of Wisconsin, was picked in the third round of the NFL draft by the Seahawks as a quarterback, and he's married, currently lives in Seattle. I know Russell, right? Do you believe me? Why don't you believe me? I try not to lie to you. Um, maybe it'd be better to ask you, do I know about Russell Wilson? Would that be better? Yeah, it would be. I know a few facts about Russell Wilson because I spent five minutes in Wikipedia. Um, and uh, I learned that, you know, the things I mentioned to you are true about Russell. Um, but I really don't know Russell Wilson, do I? No. Well, let me ask you a more important question. Do you know God? Or do you just know about God? If you were completely honest with yourself, what would be your answer to the question, do I know God? Or do I just know about God? I know some facts. You know, I've, I've got a Bible handbook. I know some facts about God. I think knowing about someone is very different than knowing someone, isn't it? The difference is massive. Listen to C.A. Spurgeon on the matter. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. 
Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnifies the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consoling. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing on the subject of the Godhead. Would you say Spurgeon knew God? I, I think you might say, yeah, sure. And that's fine for an old sage who spends his entire life studying the scriptures. And who was a pastor, nonetheless, in the 19th century. But we live in the 21st century. We live in a different world. How important is it really that I know God like that? Well, first of all, <clears throat> when Spurgeon wrote those words, he was 20 years old. Secondly, I like to suggest that the study of God is critically important for everyday life, even in the 21st century. Maybe I would say most importantly in the 21st century. We could argue, couldn't we, that it's more important that we know God than those who lived in the 19th century? The study of God brings an understanding of the world around us. It gives us insight into relationships, most importantly, our relationship with our creator and ultimately our judge. It forms a foundation for living, for fulfilling the purpose for which we've been created. Many would argue that the personal knowledge of God, that real, genuine, personal knowledge of God is the most important thing there is. We must get to know God, friends. This must be our life's primary focus. And I know that's difficult to hear and maybe even more difficult to apply. But how is it that we can get to know God? If it is indeed so critical for life and afterlife that we know God, how do we go about this? Well, how do you go about getting to know anybody? How have you done so with your spouse or with your neighbor or friend or coworker? How do you get to know them? Well, you begin by discovering some basic truths about that person. You learn, motivated by heightened interest about their life, their vocation, their interest, their little of their history. You, you learn some particulars about them, don't you? Yeah, you investigate, you ask questions, you dialogue. With God, the process of getting to know him really is similar. And here are some things that, you'll, that you will get to know about God if you already don't. Number one, he has spoken. He has spoken. He communicates. Yeah. What a tremendous thing to know about God, that he communicates. And, of course, his communication is found in the book you're holding. 
And by the way, this is the particular focus of Psalm 119, if you're wondering where we're going. The Word of God and its application for daily living. The next thing you would learn is that God is Lord and ruler of his creation. Have you learned that yet? Next, you would learn that God is triune. Within the Godhead, there are three distinct persons all working together seamlessly to accomplish his purposes for creation, for human history, for existence. And then you would discover that God is Savior. He, he intends to live with us, commune with us, be friends with us, save us. God is Savior. And not just that he is Savior, but he's done everything to accomplish saving. So getting to know God is responsive to his moves towards us. He always initiates. We just respond. Getting to know God requires trust, transparency, communication, like any friendship would. Getting to know God also includes obedience, faith, worship, prayer, praise, the things we do here on Sunday, hopefully the things you do at home throughout the week. Getting to know God is living in light of his self-revelation, the things I've just mentioned to you that we find in his word. God's word is his self-revelation. It's his story, history. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, asks this question, what is God? It's an important question for this particular conversation. What is God? And the answer given is this. God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. The great Charles Hodge said this answer is probably the best definition of God ever given. So as we've been working our way through Psalm 119, we've learned a lot about God, haven't we? It's full of information about this person that we must know, not just know about. The reason the psalm was written, in fact, was because the author knew God and saw the value of it. And he wanted those that he loved to get to know this same God personally, genuinely. He wanted to motivate us, his readers, to know him, the God of the universe. We see this in the very first five verses of this great psalm. Do you have your Bible? Turn to Psalm 119 and look with me at the first five verses. Read these as if you were in some way personally related to the author, the human author. And, and hearing his argument here as he begins this great psalm, the greatest, some say, of all written scripture. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be diligently kept. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Pretty good motivation. Right? This author, this human author, really wants you to get to know his God personally. Because of all the benefits, the 
the vast importance of it. This is why we are studying this chapter. That's why we study everything we do at Sun Valley Church. Philippians, James, Hebrews, Romans, John, Genesis. is so that you'll get to know personally God. Whether or not you're motivated to study and get to know God is one question, of course. The other is just as important, maybe more important. Why do you want to get to know God? Do you want to get to know God so that you'll know these trivial facts about God um, to the betterment of the person sitting next to you or the person in your small group so that you can answer the question, be the first to say something about this person you know about? God. Would that be your motive? If so, that, that motive isn't really about knowing God, but knowing about him, isn't it? If your goal in getting to know God is to know more than the next guy, if that's your goal, it's just about getting to know him, about him, if that's it, it, it never ends well, does it? It develops pride and conceit, which, of course, dishonor the God you say you know. And it's always counterproductive to the Christian life. It never ends well. It actually leads to self-deception, to, you know, thinking that you're better than you are, that you know God more than you do. We must guard against that, Christian friend. It's true that spiritual health directly relates to your doctrinal knowledge. In other words, you can't have spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. But it's also true that there is no spiritual health, even with doctrinal knowledge, if it's obtained through wrong motives. Remember, this is a spiritual relationship with God. It's not fake. You can't pretend your way through this thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, Verses 1 and 2, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone ima imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. He knows about God. He doesn't know God. Why? Because he just knows some basic facts. It's never entered his heart. It's never penetrated his soul. The love of the word of God and the pursuit of the knowledge of it is critically important. It's central to Psalm 119. Hey, just look at a few verses, verse 12, verse 18, 97, 103, 125. 18 is one of my favorites. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. I, I want to know your word. You've heard that verse repeated often in our liturgy. God, this is a prayer of ours at Sun Valley Church. God, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Life-changing things. So this love of the word of God and the pursuit of the knowledge of it is critical. So it's important to desire spiritual growth, desire growth in the knowledge of God's word, but we must guard our hearts from wrong motives that would undermine the whole thing. The author of Psalm 119 wants his readers to know God, not in theory, but in practice. The desire of the psalmist was to know and enjoy God on a genuine, personal level. That must be our motive, our desire. 
If the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it must begin with getting to actually know him and know him well. What does all this have to do with where we are in Psalm 119? Well, we're moving into the Sade stanza, starting in verse 137. Are you there yet? Turn to 137. It begins with an important piece of information about who God is. Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord. Lord, you are righteous. That's a fundamental reality we've got to know, personally. You remember a few weeks ago when we jumped back into Psalm 119 out of our study of Philippians, I shared with you seven reasons the Word of God is wonderful from the Pei stanza and now what we're in today, the, the Sade stanza. I mentioned to you seven reasons the Word of God is wonderful. I'll remind you of them. God's Word is wonderful because it gives understanding to the simple. It gives simpletons like us understanding. Verse 130. It's wonderful because it reveals God's mercy. Aren't you glad about that? Verse 132, it's wonderful because it gives guidance in life. Verse 133 and 134. It's wonderful because it's been tested and proved. Verse 140. It's wonderful because it is true. Verse 142. And now here in verse 137, it's wonderful. Well, verse 135, let's don't skip that one. Because God is there. And this is what we're talking about. To get to know God, we need to go where he is. He's here. Verse 135. And now, here in verse 137, it's wonderful because the Word of God is wonderful because it's altogether righteous. It says that five times in these eight verses. The Word of God is righteous. Why is God's Word altogether righteous? Verse 137 answers the question. God's Word is righteous because God is righteous. The God of righteousness is our first point that I want you to hear. When scripture speaks of God's righteousness, it's speaking about his perfection. Speaking about his perfection, it's, it's a divine attribute, but one that is connected to every other divine attribute. It's, it could be said like this. God is always right. He's righteous. He's always right about everything. God is never wrong about anything. His decisions are perfect. His judgment is perfect. The plan of human history will accomplish exactly what God wants it to. There is not a chance that this thing's going to go sideways, which should give us some peace in our current situation. In all things, God is right. He can do no wrong. He cannot condemn the innocent nor exonerate the guilty. Why? Because he's righteous. That's why. Have you personally examined and embraced this fundamental truth about God? Is that part of your knowledge of who he is? He's righteous. What, what all this means here is that God stands above Righteousness. Think about that for a second. God stands above righteousness 
In other words, God doesn't do something because it's right. It's right because he does it. If God acts, that action is right every time because God acted. He's righteous. God doesn't conform to a standard. He is the standard. But interestingly, both the Hebrew and Greek words for righteousness have a sense of conformity to a standard. When the Bible speaks of God's righteousness, it, speech, it, it is speaking about the standard of righteousness. When it speaks about human righteousness, the Bible does, it's speaking about conformity to that standard. Every time. Not most of the time, every time. When it's speaking about God's righteousness, it's talking about the standard. When it's talking about human righteousness, it's talking about conformity to that standard. When Jesus was teaching people about righteousness, do you remember what he said? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. God is the standard of righteousness because he is the fountain from which all good things flow. He is the source of righteousness. If we're going to be righteous, if you and I are going to become like God wants us to, it, will, it must come from him. We must know God. We must know this particularly about God. Notice what it says in verse 142 about God's righteousness. Look. Your righteousness is righteous forever. God's righteousness is eternally righteous. How else could it be, right? You might ask. Well, think about the importance of knowing this about God. He's eternally righteous. Of course, he begins, the psalmist does, in the right place when he writes in verse 137, You are righteous, O Lord. There's no other place to begin this conversation about God or about righteousness. If you want to get to know God, you must begin here. He's righteous. The eternal fountain of true righteousness is God himself. We wouldn't know anything about righteousness except for the existence and revelation of God. Any other form of righteousness, like self-righteousness or even imputed righteousness, which Andy talked about this morning, isn't the kind of righteousness in view in verse 137. This in verse 137 is an inherent righteousness, an intrinsic righteousness, not a derived righteousness. He's the God of righteousness. Any, anything else, any other kind of righteousness is so by way of a gift. The kind of righteousness that is a gift is derived, it's imputed, it's not intrinsic, it's not like God's righteousness. God's righteousness is like the sun, and our righteousness is like the moon, right? The moon's light is derived from the sun. It doesn't produce light on its own. It's, it must have the sun giving it its light. That is like our righteousness. After the righteousness of God is established here in verse 137, the author adds this important adjective in verse 142, forever. It's a forever kind of righteousness. God's righteousness is. This intrinsic, inherent righteousness is a forever righteousness that's eternal. And you'd say, so what? Well, <laughs> let me explain to you, so what? It's, it is significantly other 
than any other kind of righteousness, this eternal righteousness. In order to be eternally righteous, one must be eternal, which God is. Eternalness, what we know about it, stretches in both directions, doesn't it? Eternal goes that way and that way, forever and ever. That's what eternal means. And I think if you'll spend a little time thinking about it, this will encourage you. God has always done right, and he always will do right. He has never done anything wrong. He never will do anything wrong. He is eternally righteous. Combine that with his sovereignty, with his providence. And what do you come up with? <laughs> All sorts of joyful assurance. He's eternally righteous. This is what this concept of eternal righteousness communicates to us. We're in a good place, Christians. He will never do anything or act in any way that's inconsistent with his righteousness. He will always do the right thing. And this eternally righteous God, praise him, has a righteous word. Look at verse 137 and verse 138. Righteous are you, O Lord, you are right in your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Remember the synonyms for the word of God here in verse in Psalm 119, rules is a synonym for the word of God. Testimonies is a synonym for the word of God. So if we were to read it like that, right, but these things are given, by the way, these words are used, these synonymous words for the word of God are given to help us understand the nuance, difference that is communicated in these words about the word of God. But let me just read them in plain English. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your words. Verse 138, you have appointed your word in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Okay, so uh, the word translated rules there in verse 138, some of your translations say what? Judgments, right? That helps us understand the nuance that the author is after here. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are all of your judgments. This, this truth has many angles that we could pursue. That's going to shed light on how God's providence works out in our lives. A little bit about who God is. God's decisions are always right. His judgments are always right. This kind of thing is what helps us get to know God. For example, why are you here in this room this morning? You see, that's obvious. I walked through the door about half an hour ago. Well, that's true. Um, but you'd also be right in saying that you're in this room this morning because of a decision that someone made 25 years ago. Do you remember our study in Genesis and Joseph in Egypt as a slave? I argued in that context that the reason we're in this room this morning is because Joseph was faithful in prison in Egypt. That's why we're in this room this morning. In all truth, if he had not been faithful in Egypt, you and I would not be in this room this morning. That's how significant this is. <laughs> you're righteous, are you, O Lord, and your 
and aright are your judgments. Everything you decide about our lives is good and right and, and decided for a purpose to fulfilling God's objectives, his plan. See, the providence of God orchestrates not only our lives, but the lives of those who've gone before us and those who will follow us. How we live, how we think about God influences the next generation. It is true that you were in this room this morning because you walked here a little bit ago or walked in the room a little bit ago, but it's also true that you're in this room because your parents or grandparents were faithful and some faithful person shared Christ with them 40 or 80 years ago and some person shared Christ 100 years ago with that person. And the gospel continues to travel because of God's faithfulness, God's promise. God's righteousness. You see, the righteousness of God's providence not only works in our conversion and in the conversion of our kids and the conversion of our great-great-grandkids, it also works in the details of our lives, specifically day-to-day. The righteous providence of God, that is. He accomplishes his will providentially in your life. All your rules are right. All your judgments are right. God providentially accomplishes his will in your life, in your vocation, in your family circumstances, with your neighbors, with your health, with your financial well-being, all to bring about his purposes. It is the righteous judgments of God that brings all these things about in our lives. We also see in verse 138 that God has appointed his testimonies in righteousness. God has given us his word in this righteousness that we're trying to understand. And what this means is that the word of God is designed to bring about the righteousness of God in our lives. He's appointed his word to bring about, to accomplish his righteousness in our lives. How does he do this? Well, it begins in eternity past, but in our experience, it begins in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. You come to Christ because of the word of God has penetrated your dark soul. By God's righteous design, he enters your soul, that dark place that hates God, that is alienated from God. He enters there and transforms it by his word. And then that word begins to transform us into Christ-like people. Remember what Jesus said about this? He said in John 17, 17, your word is truth, right? Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. So God's word not only converts the soul, it transforms the life. <laughs> so he has a righteous word. And in verse 144, he adds another adjective to this righteous word. It's not only a righteous word, it's an eternally righteous word. It's a forever righteous word. In all seasons of life, God's word is of great value. Look at verse 143, for example. 
Trouble and anguish have found me out. Have you, could you say that? Trouble and anguish have found me out. Most of us could. If you haven't been able to say that yet, you haven't lived long enough. But your commandments are my delight. The word of God takes us into difficult circumstances to bring about the delight of God in our lives. To bring about Christ-likeness in your life, which brings joy, delight. In all seasons of life, this is particularly important. God's word is righteous. This is why you must always be reading it. This is why you must always find yourself in it. When you're a child, the word of God is designed to work into the fabric of your heart and mind, to to establish the righteousness of God's resting place. This happens when you're a child. When you are a young adult, the word of God is designed to give specific guidance in friendship development, in marriage, in child rearing. When you grow older, it is designed to bring about wisdom for this life and certainty about the next. This happens because the word of God is eternally righteous. It goes both directions in all forms and all phases of life. From time to time, we encourage you at Sun Valley Church to be reading your Bible, like you just heard me say. And here in 2021, we're going to challenge you and encourage you, as we've done before, to adopt a Bible reading plan. Why? Because you need to know God. The only way to get to know him is by saturating your life with the eternally righteous word of God. And so, on our website, we've given you a few options, different Bible reading plans. There's different plans for every taste that are available to you. There's other plans on places like BibleReadingPlans.org, and you can choose. We want to encourage you, challenge you, if you need that, to open your Bible and read it daily in 2021. And if... At the end of 2021, you decide that was a waste of time, we can talk. All right? Now let's look at the implications of God's righteousness. So we have the God of righteousness. The second point may have been better if I would have written it, the righteousness of God. The God of righteousness is the thing I've just been talking about. Now let's talk about the righteousness of God. You see how that's flipped? The second one speaks of the implications of God's righteousness to our daily living, our daily lives. The God of righteousness showers his righteousness on his creation, especially his people. The God of righteousness showers his righteousness on his creation, especially his people. But since the God of righteousness can do no wrong, He cannot be unjust in this showering of righteousness. He must deal justly with our sin. Why? Because he's righteous. Some on the left argue that the forgiveness of God isn't forgiveness because there's something attached to that forgiveness. Like the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, The forgiveness of God is attached to that. Why? Because God is righteous. He's just. He cannot wave his hand and say, ah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Sin isn't fine. It's an offense against the God of all creation. 
And he cannot just overlook it, sweep it under the rug, say it's okay. Hence, in his righteousness, he provided a savior. He himself became our savior. He came from glory. Philippians 2, remember this, right? He came from glory, left everything, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, took on humanity, flesh of our flesh, so he could live the perfect life, grant that perfection, that righteousness to us, and forgiveness that is attached to that righteousness. We need to be righteous in order to commune with God. What I just shared with you is how God has designed that to happen. No righteousness, no relationship. No righteousness, no relationship. In order to fulfill the purpose for which we have been created, God must be gracious towards us and pour his righteousness on us. And he has done this in Jesus Christ. Let me read for you Romans 3, 24 through 26. And just in the quietness of your heart, Christian, revel in what you're about to hear. And are, that is, we are justified by his grace as a gift through, how is this gift granted? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation, a satisfaction of God by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Before Christ came, he passed over former sins, allowed the Old Testament sacrifices to temporarily cover those sins. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God is absolutely just in granting you forgiveness of your sins. He's not sweeping it under the rug. He's not saying, ah, it's okay, don't worry about it. He's laid your sins on Christ completely. In fact, so much so that he never, never, no longer views you as a sinner. He views you in connection to his perfect son. Friends, we need to get a clear perspective on who God is, how much he loves us. All that he has done to prove that he loves us. And it all, if you trace it back, comes to that gold mine of the righteousness of God. He always does right. So that righteousness that we as Christians possess that make us acceptable to our creator is what they call imputed righteousness or given righteousness, granted righteousness. In other words, it's not inherent to us. We can't muster it up. It's a gift. It's, it's been given to God through Jesus Christ to us. The righteousness of Christ has been given as a gift to all who have been born again. Have you been born again? Then you have received this gift of righteousness. There's no other way to be born again. 
Everyone who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, another way of saying being born again, who's, been, who's had that experience by the Holy Spirit, possesses this righteousness, the righteousness of God. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to get to know God? This is the only way, through Jesus Christ. Through having his righteousness wash over your soul. No righteousness, no relationship. Friends, we're undeserving sinners. You can't even read this stanza and miss that. We are undeserving sinners. This is an act of grace that God gives us his righteousness. Look at verse 141. I am small and despised. Need we go further? That's a description, a biblical description of our sin. We're not despised of God. We're loved by God. Despises the idea of wretched. I'm small and wretched. God, why would you have this kind of love for me? We are unrighteous in our nature. We're born unrighteous. We're born alienated from God. We're enemies of Christ. We're enemies of God. Until God in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, regenerates our hearts, we remain in that state. No one seeks God. No one comes to him on their own. No one thinks the gospel is good news without the gracious and righteous work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. No righteousness, no relationship. You can't get that backwards. If the gospel sounds good, it's because God has given his righteousness to you and has regenerated your heart. Otherwise, the gospel is not good news. It sounds like condemnation, doesn't it? That's why a lot of these people who are pretending to be pastors and saying we don't talk about sin in our church are completely lost. In his grace, God blesses us with his righteousness through his son, Jesus Christ, he gives us his righteousness to all who believe. If you believed, it's because he has granted you righteousness. Secondly, this righteousness of God brings about spiritual growth. Look at verse 140. Your promise is well tried. Your servant loves it. It's a description of spiritual growth. Verse 143, look at that. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight, spiritual growth. Verse 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. They give me understanding that I may live, spiritual growth. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about this righteousness of God given to us, why we need it, because we are desperate sinners, undeserving sinners, and that it brings about spiritual growth. <clears throat> First Peter 2.24 gives us the answers to why this brings about spiritual growth. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Spiritual growth. Titus 2.12, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, that's the word righteous, upright, and godly lives in the present age. His righteousness, God's righteousness given to us, brings about our righteousness. What it produces, I'm not going to spend too much time here. In fact, 30 seconds. God's righteousness brings about assurance. I'm going to dive into this in the weeks to come. God's righteousness brings assurance. God's righteousness brings joy. God's righteousness brings life. Oh, friends, do you know God? 
How well do you know him? Are you winning trivia games with your knowledge of God, or is it changing your life? Let's get to know God in 2021 together. Let's come to our services together with an expectation that he is going to reveal a little bit more of himself to us here today. Let's open our Bibles at home throughout the week, looking for ways that this God of righteousness is going to change us with the righteousness of God. Pray with me. God of righteousness, we can only come into your presence because of your grace and mercy to us found in Jesus Christ, the Lord of righteousness. We are here because we desire to know you, for you to reveal yourself to us. I ask, Lord, that each person in this room would desire in great honesty, transparency, genuineness to truly get to know you, to be friends with the God of the universe to have your righteousness flood our soul that we may become like Christ and live in and with his righteousness. Bless us as individuals, bless our church. We give all praise and glory to you for what you have done here at Sun Valley, for the many lives that you have touched through your goodness and grace, your eternal righteousness. And I pray this in the name of the eternally righteous one, amen.